Welcome to Hippie Witch, magic for a new age. I'm your host, Joanna DeBone, and this is a happy, hippie place for talking all things magic, witches and fiction, and creating the kick-ass life of your dreams. Hi, thanks for joining me for episode 398, which is almost 400 episodes. Woohoo! Thanks for joining me for episode 398 of Hippie Witch Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe, and I am the kooky creatrix behind Kick Ass Switch, putting the K in magic. And Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit. And you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com or back on the description page for this episode, back on Blog Talk Radio, where you will also find a link to today's all kinds of magical, super witchy guest, Pam. Grossman. But before we get to Pam, I got some chit-chatting to do. And first and foremost, I have to thank the amazing people supporting the podcast over on Patreon. Thank you all for helping me pay my bills. And a special shout out goes out this week to new patrons. Luke, is it Lamp or Lampe? L-A-M-P-E. Soul Antel, Jess Echo, thank you so much, Jess, for giving my Patreon page a shout out on Twitter. I always appreciate that. Shannon Stanley and Shirley Hancock. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope you're loving the content there. I'm going to be posting a lot of bonus content kind of here, there, and everywhere, but especially on Patreon all summer long for the Summer of Magic, so... Enjoy, enjoy, spread the word if you're having fun over there, and thank you. This interview today with Pam Grossman is late. It's late. I meant to post it yesterday, and I had a really busy day planned, but I thought if I stayed very focused and very centered and very calm, I could get it done. And I had two interviews that I recorded. So I recorded one at 9 o'clock in the morning and one at 2 p.m. I, I got in one with Lori Forrest, the author of The Black Witch Chronicles, and another with David Hayward, the naked pastor. We talked about all kinds of things, but recovery from spiritual abuse and poverty mentality and how those two things can be related. I think y'all are going to love that. And then also, just beyond that, I have got quite a few in the queue now, too. I have an interview with kick-ass creatrix Liz Worth coming up. We're talking about the power of Tarot. I have another with Johanna Warren, who is a singer, songwriter, Reiki master, witch, and the founder of Spirit House Records. She healed herself from a myriad of health conditions in partnership with plants, with Mother Nature. So I know you'll all love that too. And I believe... If all goes well, I am talking with Matt Oren on Monday. So, yeah. 
Yeah, we got some good interviews coming up, and I am absolutely serious about this whole Summer of Magic business that you will definitely be hearing more about. I am determined to bring you the most magical interviews with the most magical, inspiring people all summer long, including the one that is coming up here in a few more minutes if I stop flapping my gums. But first, I got to tell you why it's late. So my intention yesterday was to record those two interviews I just told you about and then edit my interview with Pam, record the intro and outro, and then upload it with links and all that jazz before dinner. But then something happened. The kid and I were just chilling like we do in the living room when he gets home from his program and we were talking about his day and I heard this like chirp, 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 chirp. This very cute Disney-like chirping sound coming from the front door. So I went outside to see what was going on and there was a chubby little black and brown bird. He's He looked like a baby, but he was bigger than a tennis ball. So a big baby. And he couldn't move. I knew he was hurt because he didn't fly away when I opened the door or when I like sat down on the step to be like, hey, little buddy, what's going on? I went and got Tanner's iPad. I took a picture of him and he was not going to move. So I knew something was up. So I got a box and I asked Tanner. Tanner, my son, is amazing with bugs. That's a whole other subject, but he's like the bug whisperer and he will pick up anything but a spider pretty much. (laughs) So I was like, do you want to gently pick this bird up and put it in the box? And he was all about it. But every time he would get his hands close to the bird, the bird would hop away. And then we could see he had a broken wing. His little wing was sticking out. And we have three cats. We used to have four Rest in peace, my beloved Odie. Uh, But we also have tons of neighborhood cats. So it's like, we have to get this bird in the box before the cats come out here. So we're trying to be very, very quiet because they'll all come running if they hear us. (laughs) They love us. They're obsessed with us. Uh, So we're trying to get the bird and we couldn't. So I went and grabbed a towel and that was the magic trick. I, I just very gently like wrapped the towel around the bird And he let me. He didn't struggle at all. And then I put him in the box. And then I was like, okay, so (laughs) I'm supposed to be putting the Pam Grossman interview together right now. But what do I do? I can't just put this guy outside. I don't know how to keep him alive in a box until maybe his wing just miraculously heals itself. Maybe it's just a sprained wing. I don't know. So I called the Humane Society in Pasadena And the kid and I, we just called it our adventure. I decided, you know what? This is life. Life is happening right now. We love Mother Nature. We love the little little birdies. And so I'm just going to say this is guided. This is guided. I am meant to have a mom adventure with my kid and save this little bird. So we live in Glendale. Pasadena is not too far from here. So we drove the bird to the Pasadena Humane Society, and Tanner was thrilled, and it was fun. It felt it felt good. It felt good. So here I am doing this a day late. <laughs> so let's bring this back around to Pam Grossman, who probably needs no introduction because she is a very popular witch. She's an author and speaker and curator, among many other things, and the host of the Witch Wave podcast. podcast. 
And she can probably do a much better job of telling you what she's all about than I can. So without any further ado, here she is, Pam Grossman. Hello. Hi, Pam. Welcome to Hippie Witch. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited to finally get to meet you because the Hippie Witch podcast shows up on these lists of like the best the best witchy podcasts and your podcast, Witch Wave, is always above me in the list. And I'm like, I'm going to talk to her one of these days. And here we are. Aw, that's so nice to hear. I know this world of like clicks and lists is actually quite fatiguing, but I'm very happy to be sharing space with you in that way for sure. I'm always thrilled to be on a list of anything somebody's enjoying. So it's flattering to me and I love being included in company like yourself. The Witch Wave podcast is awesome. So let's just start there. Thank you so much. It's so much fun to do. How? Well, let's start from the beginning. What is a witch wave? It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek phrase that I came up with because over the years, I'm constantly, I've constantly been asked, what's up with this witch trend? Or, you know, journalists will say things like, it's the season of the witch. But they've been saying this for so long now. Um, and I'm of the opinion that this isn't a trend, that the interest in witchcraft is not a trend. It's actually been kind of this you know, slowly building sea change, um, over many, many, many years, which we can talk about. Um, but it's kind of my response to the idea of different waves of feminism, um, because with each kind of cresting wave of feminism, and we're supposed to be in the fourth wave right now, there does seem to be at least media, um, or, or I should say, there does seem to be a, at least renewed interest by the media in the story of the witch. Um, and certainly feminists tend to become interested in witches as political figures, too. So this was kind of me winking to that. But I also love the idea of, you know, the play on words with radio waves, even though I know we're not talking over radio waves anymore. Um, I still think of podcasts as kind of a radio, certainly auditory medium. So the word wave kind of tickled my fancy there, too. Absolutely. I think podcasting is extraordinarily magical. And we talk so much in the magical community about frequencies and vibrations. And so I love the idea of like we're sending out the love on the on the magical air waves. <laughs> I love that, too. And it's such an intimate format. I mean, yes, we really are in people's ears and heads. And, um, you know, when I'm listening to podcasts, I really feel this kinship with the hosts and oftentimes the guests in a way that I don't necessarily feel when I'm watching them on TV or something because it feels um, like such a, I don't know, it's, it's a much more closer uh, format, I think. It That surprised me. I started with video back in the day and when I switched to podcasting, It was a huge jump in people tuning in, for one thing, and also the messages I would get, like that sense of connection. And I was like, okay, I'm in it, like podcasting for life. I love getting to connect with people this way. 
Exactly. And, and people can eavesdrop, right? I mean, how many people right now are going to be listening to this uh, conversation? It, it's, it's this idea that you and I can feel a little bit less self-conscious because we're not necessarily worried about how we look and our angles and all of that on camera. Um, but also, you know, people can allow themselves to include you and me in their domestic lives or in their, you know, commutes or while they're washing dishes or, I mean, I listen to podcasts in the shower. It doesn't get much more intimate than that. How do you do that? We have a Bluetooth waterproof speaker and yeah, so it's very, you can just get it on, you know, all the, all the online stores have them. They're super cheap and it's great because, you know, I get to catch up on so many different podcasts and, you know, kind of multitask and let my imagination go. I usually get a lot of ideas in the shower, so it's really good brain food and, uh, you know, two birds, one stone. That's awesome. Another thing. I love about the name Witch Wave is you do your show, if I'm remembering correctly, in waves. Like you have these seasons that you do, which I think is very smart. And and you've gotten to speak with so many interesting, magical people. How has podcasting furthered, or has it at all, furthered your understanding of magic or witch culture or both? Yeah. Well, for the first part of your question, I do seasons. I've been taking the summers off and that's both um, just for my own kind of mental well-being. And and I have so many other commitments and projects. So it's really nice for me to just take a little bit of a pause and and time to regroup. Um, And, you know, I like to, when I can travel and take a little bit of vacation for myself. So that's been the cadence thus far. Um, But But in terms of what I've learned about witches and witchcraft, I think my biggest takeaway is that it really affirms for me that there's no one way to be a witch, that nobody owns the word witch, that there's no gatekeeper to witchcraft or to identifying as a witch, whether politically, culturally, or spiritually. And that really excites me. You know, when I'm putting together the podcast, I am very mindful about curating guests from all different perspectives and also lived experiences. And, you know, even though you can't see the guests, I'm very conscious of making sure that I have queer people and people of color and, you know, people who have backgrounds that are different than mine um, because. I just, first of all, think it's more interesting. And I I also want to cast a very wide circle when it comes to the archetype of the witch and make sure that people feel as included as possible. Yes. And I don't mean to keep harping on this, but again, that brings me back to this idea of what wave are we in for the witch, like this witch wave. If there's feminist, you know, we're on such and such wave of feminism. When I think about the current wave we're riding, it's different because of the internet, because we can connect with each other, but also people can stand up and say, this is who I am. And I see that reflected in pop culture now. I think we have this conversation going back and forth between the people and the 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 former gatekeepers. Those gates are slowly being torn down because people power. 
And I definitely think podcasting has a place in that. I think so too. And I think just, you know, for all of the frustrating things about the internet, of which there are many, it still is this incredible network of connection and the access that we have to each other um, is unprecedented. And certainly there's a shadow side to that, but the positive side to it is, you know, we can find kindred spirits and we can be exposed to things that we were never exposed to before. And, you know, I think if we are in another quote unquote, witch wave, you know, if we, if we do want to say that, and, and I'm still kind of, um, on the fence about that. But if we are, I, I agree with you that this is something that is being catalyzed certainly by the internet and also by the conversation around things like privilege and cultural appropriation and access. And I want to be sure that whatever I'm exploring, whether through my writing or the podcasting or, you know, various other projects that I'm being mindful of those conversations too. Absolutely. For me, that wouldn't be possible without the internet. I have been schooled left and right. <laughs> Every time I go on Twitter, I feel like I learn something new about someone else's perspective, the conversations around what it means to be transgender, or I've learned so much from black Twitter. And I love, too, that we can find kindred spirits from all around the world, but people that might on the surface seem so so different from us, but that these online conversations that we have can sometimes, if people are cool, break down the barrier, <laughs> break down the barriers and we can find we have more in common than not. Exactly. And that's certainly not to erase anybody's experiences um, because, you know, it's interesting. I, I, was raised in a primarily white community. Um, you know, I did have friends from different backgrounds for sure, but you know, I was in a suburb in New Jersey and when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, it was mostly white people that I was surrounded by. And as I've gotten older and as my, you know, friend groups and, um, social groups and professional groups, and also just, you know, the, the horizons of my own reading and, and cultural ingestion have all broadened. I've learned so much. Um, and, and, you know, I was raised to be like, oh, everybody's really the same and I'm colorblind and, you know, I love everybody regardless of what they look like. And that's a beautiful sentiment, but it can also really erase, you know, some of the pain and some of the um, hardships that people of different experiences carry with them. And so I've learned a lot also about whiteness and about privilege yes. and about the things about myself I didn't even see before. So that's been a real learning experience, not always an easy one, but certainly an important one. Yeah, I always just say, I'm just going to shut up and listen. I, mm -hmm. I do a lot of listening and taking in what other people's experience means to them in a holistic way. It's really not just about the color of their skin, although it may that may affect their experience, but it, it's beyond the actual color and goes into like 
the culture, different ways of being as a family, the different ways that you're treated by society. It's been extremely eye-opening. Absolutely. Your socioeconomic background, the access you have to education. Medical procedures. Yes. Your physical abilities, your mental health. I mean, there are so many different vectors. Um, And, you know, as long as we're all approaching this, I think, with a spirit of compassion and certainly trying to find emotional commonality, but without dissolving you know, one another's stories to make them more comfortable for ourselves. You know, I think that's really the key and it's, it's, it's a challenge, but I think it's also really beautiful and heartening and it's only going to strengthen us. Yeah. I would say compassion too, for yourself, because especially if you're a white person in this new, in this new conversation, you're definitely going to fuck up. You're going to say something or think something that's so wrong. And then it's important to stay in the conversation and to not let that freak you out. And to me, the best way to do that is, well, first of all, to apologize if you've said something ridiculous but or hurtful, but also just to say, okay, I have compassion for myself. This is the belief system I was raised in, and I'm willing to change that without hating myself for, for, for where I've been. I'm excited about where I'm going, and I can love myself through the whole process. Exactly. And I definitely, you know, can sometimes, um, kind of submit myself to self-flagellation in all different areas, you know, not just in the context of, you know, trying to be as compassionate and inclusive as possible, but also just in terms of like the way I conduct my life and deal with my own anxieties and perfectionism. And I think it is a, a really good point you're bringing up that, you know, we're going to make mistakes and we have to take responsibility for them. And, you know, whatever pain my fragile ego ego might feel when I'm being corrected or called out for something is nothing compared to the pain of the person who is doing the calling out usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet still, you know, I think you're right to say, expect that you're going to mess up sometimes and it doesn't mean you're the worst person in the world. And, you know, also I think spending too much time again, centering yourself on feeling like, Oh, I'm such a failure. Like that's also very, you know, egotistical and self-centered and it's not about you, you know, it's not about me, you know, like how can we better serve the conversation and better serve our communities? Yes. And when in doubt, shut up and listen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You were talking about your background. I'm very curious about this. Across the board for everybody that calls themselves a witch. I love to know, like, when did that start and what religion were you raised in? And I, if I'm remembering correctly, you were raised Jewish. That's right. So how did that all play out? Yeah, it's it's kind of a winding road. Um, I mean, the, the kind of Cliff Notes version is I've always considered myself to be a witch or a magical person, like ever since I was a kid, but it wasn't really until... Uh, it's been over a decade now that I've like said that 
publicly and really um, given myself permission to use that word when I'm describing myself or, you know, as one of the many ways in which I describe myself. Because I think one of the tricks of the word witch is, you know, it is a very charged word. And that's not the only word I want people to think of when they're talking about me or thinking about me. You know, you don't want to flatten yourself into one identity or one stereotype. Um, And yet, of course, like it is a word that makes people's ears perk up a little bit. Um, But it's a word that, you know, I identify with for many different reasons. And and part of that is certainly my spiritual practice and my, my magical practice. So I've been doing some form of magic since I was a child. And I often say that I think most of us do, like just being a child is a very magical thing because you don't really have these borders between the imagination and what is quote unquote rational or logical. You know, it all is kind of this beautiful blur. And I was encouraged at a very young age to go as deeply as I could into my imagination and to be super creative. You know, I have these wonderful parents, um, who have had different day jobs over the years, but my mom is an artist. She's a painter primarily, and my dad is a musician. And so I was very blessed to be raised in this super creative household and, you know, being taken to museums or, um, you know, being exposed to like goddesses or, um, you know, even talk about spirituality in general outside the bounds of just Judaism was really, really nurturing for me. So, so that was certainly a piece of it. Um, and then, you know, my love of mythology and fantasy and reading just kind of led me eventually, as I think it does for many of us, to new age bookstores and metaphysical bookshops and the occult sections of, you know, the library and stuff like that. And that's where I discovered that, whoa, there are spell books. Like that's a real thing. And, and I can experiment with these and and see what happens. You know, I, I find it really important to emphasize that my magical life and my creative life were really braided together and they still are. I think of them as two sides of the same coin because as I was experimenting with magic, I was also painting and writing and, you know, like got very into music and weird films and comic books. And, and that really fed me from a magical perspective too, um, and has really helped shape the style of witchcraft and the kind of witch that I, that I am and, and what I do. I find a lot of artists gravitate toward witchcraft because, in my opinion, witchcraft is the art of spirituality. It's for people who want a sensual, hands-on, personal experience of their, of their path. And a lot of it involves creativity, particularly in the imagination, but also hands-on with the candles and the herbs and the incense and all of the fun accessories on your altar. 
Exactly. I can't remember who said it. I want to say it was Starhawk, but I might be wrong. Who said like magic is prayer with props. <laughs> and <laughs> I've always loved that phrase um, because it's true. And, and certainly look, we don't need the objects and some of my practices, meditation and visualization and breath work. But I do think there's an aesthetic component to it. There, There's beauty and there's ritual and there's objects and there's smells and candles and smoke. And to your point, like all of these very embodied, um, somatic experiences and techniques that are part of witchcraft. So I think you're right. I think people who are, um, naturally, you know, excited by bodied experiences or sensorial experiences tend to be attracted to witchcraft for sure. And, and certainly artists are among that set. Yeah, the way it drags you outside into nature as well, like stepping into the creation of the great mysterious creator, I think puts you in touch with your own creator, the creator within. Yeah, I think that's a really lovely way to put it. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because I've spoken to so many different witchy or witch adjacent people now. And some folks like are not into the nature part of it and they just want to like light candles and do kind of, you know, interior witchcraft and other people are only about nature and some people combine the two. And, and I, I find that really interesting too, that there are so many different styles to it and there's no one right way to do it. It's a self-directed path and you can certainly find teachers and books and maybe even a coven. Of course you can, but everybody's witchcraft tends to look different. And I've found that the more personal and creative my magic is, the more potent it is. Yeah. And I mean, here's a news flash. You are nature. <laughs> nature, yes. nature, I mean, as above, so below, as within, so without, like you literally are nature. So even if you would never went outside, you're still in contact with nature at all times. Absolutely. That's such a good point. Mm-hmm. So are you, you were raised by a culturally Jewish family, but you were not practicing the religion? <laughs> We were, no, we were definitely practicing, but in Judaism, there are kind of different <laughs> flavors, if you will. And our flavor is called Reform Judaism, which is the most kind of flexible, liberal kind of Jewish. Um, in other words, we didn't keep kosher. We didn't necessarily celebrate Shabbat every Friday. You know, I did go to Hebrew school. I did have a bat mitzvah. Um, we certainly celebrated celebrated the high holidays and Hanukkah and Passover. Um, and it was a big part of my family history and our, our kind of storyline as, you know, immigrants, um, you know, a few generations earlier to New York from Europe and, and stuff. But it also was not something that I, if I'm being honest, that I really loved their parts of Judaism that I really like and I feel grateful that I was raised with it. But there was a lot about Judaism that was kind of a turnoff for me. Um, I'll tell you one great thing about the synagogue I grew up in, though, that had a huge influence on me. There was one year, and I wish I could remember exactly when it was, but I was definitely in elementary school, 
where our prayer books were switched out. And our old prayer books used masculine gender pronouns for God. So God was he. And all of our prayers only talked about like Moses and Jacob and so on. And then one day, suddenly our prayer books all turned to gender neutral pronouns for God. Wow, that is progressive. It was amazing. And suddenly, you know, women's names like Rebecca and Leah and Sarah were added to our prayers. And it was incredible because it was like, oh, so the people in charge of our synagogue made a conscious effort to be more gender inclusive. And it's something I really internalized and I didn't think about it too much at the time, but retrospectively, I'm like, that was such a huge lesson I carried with me that religion is not stagnant or final, that we can remake it, that we can expand it, we can change our language, we can evolve it forward. And even though, you know, look, Judaism is still part of my identity and it's still um, something I practice in a limited amount. Um, And certainly as I've gotten older, things like Kabbalah and the whole mystical side of Judaism and divine feminine side of Judaism have become more meaningful to me. Um, You know, I've gone in this other more pagan direction, certainly. But that lesson I've really carried with me that, you know, we get to define our spiritual experiences and we get to change our stories as we grow. You can decline to answer this if it's too personal, but I'm curious how your family experienced you calling yourself a witch. And now that you're building a career on that word, does it conflict with their religious beliefs or have they just always been cool with it? It, it doesn't conflict. My parents are very, very supportive. My, my husband is not a witch in any way, and he's really supportive. Um, and interestingly, so my husband's parents, um, both of his parents are remarried, and his father and stepmother are Episcopal priests. And I was definitely nervous about how they would take me both as a not Christian person and as someone who identifies as a witch. And I've been really heartened by the fact that, look, they've had some questions and we've had some conversations about it, but they've been really supportive and open-minded and they love me and I love them. And we have all kinds of really interesting conversations about religion and and mysticism. So that's been beautiful. Um, But yeah, all six of my kind of parental figures that I have between my in-laws and my own parents. They've been really um, supportive and excited for me. Um, I do think, you know, my parents... like they're, they're hugely supportive of me as this was becoming a bigger and bigger part of my life. We definitely had to have a lot of conversations. And I remember when I, um, was getting married and this is, uh, nine years ago. Now my husband and I wanted to incorporate some magical elements and witchly elements into the wedding And my parents were fine with it, but they had a lot of questions about it. And it was also important to them that there were some Jewish elements. And it was important to my husband's family that there were some Christian elements. And so there was a lot to navigate, but it all came from a loving place. I know that I'm really blessed and really lucky that there hasn't been too much controversy 
because not everybody has that. Um, in my case, you know, I really hit the jackpot when it comes to my family. It's good to know that exists, though. I know a lot of my listeners are afraid of their own families, and I know why, <laughs> because I, yes. I, I share that fear. So it's exciting to be like, well, here's here's one witch who's having a fabulous time with her in-laws. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you also have to you know, know your audience. Right. And even now there are some people that I don't necessarily go into huge detail about my identity or this part of my identity with, because, you know, you want to be safe, honestly, but I try to live as out and proud as I possibly can be. And, um, I'm hoping that the more people who do it, then the more other people will feel encouraged to as well. Yeah, I think, too, when you are a person like yourself who has put yourself out there artistically like you have, you're so involved in the arts. We should touch on that a little bit. But I think it creates a certain expectation like, okay, here's Pam being artsy, but now we're talking about witches. (laughs) It's allowed me to slide in a little bit under the radar because I've been a creative person my whole life. That's great to hear. And, you know, look, I had a corporate day job for 14 years and it was a pretty public position, especially in the last four years. Like I was, you know, on these international stages, giving presentations and I was being interviewed by the press about different projects. You know, I'm I'm proud of the work that I got to do in that context. But I also want people to know that, like, I was a witch the entire time I was doing all of that, too. Not that I would bring it up because it it just wasn't relevant to whatever the work I was doing was. But, you know, witches are everywhere. We have every kind of job. We look like anything. So I hope that that helps give some people affirmation, too. Sorry, everybody. We're having technical difficulties, but I want to continue this conversation about art because I know, Pam, you have been so involved in the artistic community where you live. I know you had a hand in changing the stock imagery for Getty Images, which blows my mind. Your work there has been amazing, and I'd love to hear all about that in addition to some other like curating that you've done, stuff like that. Absolutely. So I worked for Getty Images for 14 years. I actually left about two years ago now, Um, but yeah, during that time, I worked for the creative department. And over the last four or so years, I was their director of visual trends. And I got to oversee all these projects that, you know, committed to using the power of images to change gender cliches and to be more inclusive from a visual standpoint. Um, so that was really, really meaningful. And funnily enough, not terribly unrelated to witches in that, you know, I think the visual components of culture really help shape our notions about what beauty is, what power is, what is acceptable, what is aspirational. And so in the same ways that I tried to help evolve images of women and honestly, people of all genders in commercial photography during my tenure at Getty Images, 
I hope I'm helping to do that now when it comes to the image of the witch. And this is something that I've written about quite a bit because the image of the witch has really evolved over many centuries. And I believe that it reflects our feelings and our fears and our fantasies about feminine power. Um, and so that's been that's been really interesting. And, and some of the ways in which I do that certainly is through the podcast and the book, but I've also curated a lot of art shows and give lectures and teach on this topic, too. Yeah, you did a, a show. Didn't you do a show called Language of the Birds that was that, just about witch imagery? It was about occult imagery. So some of it was about witches and witchcraft, but it was a little bit more broad in scope. And here we're getting very semantically nerdy. Um, but yeah, it was called Language of the Birds, Occult and Art. Mm. And this was a show I did in 2016 for NYU. And it had, you know, 100 years of artwork that's been influenced by the occult or includes occult themes. And it had people or artists, I should say, like Leonora Carrington and Harry Smith, who, um, whose birthday is today. I just learned happy birthday and happy birthday, Harry Smith, wherever you are. (laughs) And, um, you know, Kenneth Anger and Kurt Seligman and Kiki Smith and, you know, the list goes on Alistair Crowley. Um, it was, it was a really, Ah, I don't know, really meaningful show, certainly in my life. And, and it was astounding to see how much it resonated with people because, you know, NYU is an institution and their gallery is an institutional academic space. And to see, you know, the, um, the, the amount of people that attended, it broke attendance records for the gallery. Um, so it really, I think kind of was another example of the ways in which people are starting to embrace ideas of the occult. Even if you don't believe in magic yourself or, you know, you don't want to be a practitioner of witchcraft or the occult, that's fine. I still think it's important to acknowledge how these ideas have shaped culture for many, many years. Your the money in your wallet, like the imagery on the money in your wallet. It's everywhere. Occult symbolism and, and the occult influence in art. Absolutely. I mean, here in New York City, we have these obelisks that are, you know, throughout the city that, you know, Freemasons wanted to bring in to, you know, bring in some kind of, they believed, Egyptian magical power. To phallicize the city. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, Grand Central Station, one of our big train stations here in New York, has a giant sculpture of Mercury and, you know, other deities on top of it. Everywhere you look, you start to see the influence of myth and magic on culture. And I love finding it and I love sharing it with people. I can definitely see a through line in your corporate work all the way up into your new book, which we're going to talk about, Waking the Witch. But when you're talking about working for Getty Images and the way you started imbuing that platform, which is maybe the biggest platform in the world for imagery, I don't know. It's a big one. With diversity, And I can hear just in talking to you how important that has always been to you and how you're bringing that to everything you do. 
how you, in 2017, you created Witch Emoji, and then that was a bestseller. <laughs> that was, like, number one in the in the iTunes or in the Apple Store. I, I see what you're doing, lady. I see it. I definitely see a through line. <laughs> I'm glad because sometimes it's sort of hard to talk about because one's life takes all these different, I don't know, kind of tangents and corners, and I certainly didn't have some grand plan for it all. But but I also, you know, when I, when I kind of look back retrospectively, I think, you know, one of the things that I've always been interested in is the way in which symbols change consciousness. And that can be in art, in film, uh, you know, in advertising, in fashion. Um, and so if symbols change consciousness, I want to help to put forth or at least spotlight symbols that, in my opinion, help diversify and beautify and empower as many people as possible. It makes perfect sense then that your first book was What is a Witch? And it was, how would you describe it? I I see it described on your website as an illuminated manifesto. I've seen other people describe it as a graphic novel. But it certainly involves visual art. I know. And sometimes I'm like, maybe I should just call it like an adult picture book. But the word I tend to use is comic book. I mean, it's, it's not quite a graphic novel. It's not that long and it doesn't really have a plot. It's kind of an illustrated poem or invocation. And the artists I worked with are called Tin Can Forest. They are a wife and husband art team who collaborate up in Canada and they are so amazing. And so the format of the book really is kind of comic book style where the text is woven throughout the imagery that they've created. I feel like I will, I'll refrain from asking you what is a witch because I think you've done a pretty good job of explaining that. So let's talk uh, about book number two. Oh, uh, yeah. And thank you for not asking me that because <laughs> I, I actually hate defining things because definitions change and words change. And, and that's why I wrote this book because it's not an answer or it's not a question that can be easily answered in one sentence or one definition. I think it merits much deeper exploration. And, you know, I could have probably written 12 books about this. Um, but yeah, waking the witch is certainly me celebrating that question and trying to answer it and trying to show how many people have tried to answer it throughout time. Yeah. It's hard just answering it beyond what is a witch? <laughs> what is this witch? I found just try to answer that question for myself. Why, why do I call myself that? Why yep. have I infused that into my business? What does it mean? Like it's endless. It's it's a bottomless question. Absolutely. And, you know, I often say the word witch is a shapeshifter in the same way that what it's describing is a shapeshifter because it is a word or an archetype that I believe you know, changes shape and has many facets and says as much about the people who are using it as it does about anything else. Um, Certainly the word witch has historically been used as a negative epithet to shame and blame and frame people. And, you know, sometimes um, with really horrific results, um, as in the witch hunts that happened 
throughout Europe and the New England colonies, and and that still happened throughout the world today. I mean, you know, you and I are very privileged that we feel safe enough to call ourselves witches in public, um, even though it does feel a little bit risky in some contexts. But my goodness, there are parts of the world and parts of this country and certain communities and families where that is still a very risky word to use or to have somebody call you. On the flip side, it is a word that since the 19th century has become reclaimed um, specifically by feminists, but also by spiritual seekers and free spirits and open-minded people of, of many different stripes. And that's been so exciting to, you know, really trace the, the lineage of. Um, so the book does that too. The book both talks about the shadow side of the word and it talks about why that word is being used in so many more positive contexts now. Okay. Listening to the way that all just rolls off the top of your head. I know you have a history as a lecturer. We're definitely about to talk about Waking the Witch, your new book. But the way you talk fascinates me. Are you formally educated? Is this something that you developed intentionally? Because you have such a measured, articulate way of expressing your ideas, one on top of the next, like in perfect order. And I am such a hot mess that way. I love books. I love words. I think of myself as a smart person, but then I listen to you and I'm like, holy smokes, I'm such a nut. (laughs) Oh my goodness. You know, and I actually really admire other people's clarity and brevity because sometimes I feel like my brain is a runaway train and my mouth is just trying to catch up with it. And, you know, I am so grateful for editing because people sometimes, you know, they're very kind and they compliment me on the podcast. And I'm like, yes, it is edited because I pause and halt and rethink and misspeak all the time. Um, but thank you so much for the compliment. And I don't know, I, I, I love to read. I love words and this is just how my brain works. And, uh, sometimes my mouth cooperates with Mm. it and sometimes not. (laughs) What a gift. What a gift. So let's talk about waking the witch reflections on women, magic and power, which, will have just released when this when this episode goes live. Terrific. Waking the Witch is a love letter to the archetype of the witch and it's kind of this I suppose my my publicist wouldn't want me to describe it as like a funny and weird combination of genres, but that's honestly how I think about it because You know, there are a lot of books out there that talk about the history of witches, or they talk about the witch in pop culture, or their, you know, memoirs about how someone became a witch or came to identify as a witch. And honestly, this book is my attempt to weave together all three, because as I've studied the witch and as I've gone more deeply in my own witchery, so to speak, in in my life, I've come to realize that this is an archetype that has been evolving for so many years. And as soon as you think you know what a witch is, 
there's a counter witch. You know what I mean? Like there is a scary, horrible witch who lives in the woods and she has sex with the devil and she eats babies. And there's also Hermione and, you know, like they are both witches. Um, and, and, and so I've really come to realize that witches do reflect our fears and our fantasies about feminine power. And, and I wanted to just dive deep into that. And so the book is kind of broken up thematically. I mean, the first chapter is about the concept of good witches versus wicked witches. And it's sort of the jumping off point um, for the ways in which I think we still ask women to choose one side of two options, you know, to choose to be one side of a binary or another, you know, are you a slut or are you a good girl? Are you a virgin or a whore? Are you beautiful or ugly? Are you good or are you bad? And, you know, by talking about the Wizard of Oz as my jumping off point, I start to explore how much I don't like both as a woman and as a witch to be asked to be, you know, put in that binary position. Um, and then from there, you know, I talk about teen witches. I talk about the witch and the body. Um, I talk about witches and the mind and the spirit. I talk about covens. I talk about, um, you know, witches who are, kind of political or cultural figures versus spiritual figures. So it's, it's really me riffing in all of these different directions and showing all of these different, hopefully connection points, um, across these concepts of female power or feminine power and how we've come to conceive of witches at any given moment in our society and what they've come to mean for me in my life as a woman, as a creative person, and as, yes, a practitioner of witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So it's not a book that is a how-to guide. It's not how to be a witch. This is how you set up your altar. This is an exploration of what it means to be a witch, pop culture, reflections of women. It sounds very feminist to me. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you will, you will find in this book, talk about Sabrina, the teenage witch and Buffy and Gerald Gardner and Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varro and Lana Del Rey and Beyonce. Like it goes in all of these different directions and talks about all these different ways in which we have been embodying the archetype of the witch. Um, and, and why it's important. Like, why do we keep coming back to this figure over and over again? Why does she keep showing up in fashion, in horror movies, in music? How did we get here? Um, you know, so certainly when you talk about how did we get here, you have to talk about the witch hunts and Christianity, and you have to talk about Shakespeare. And, you know, so, so it really, it, 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 it ping pongs across all of these different 
all these different spheres. And that's just how my brain works. I love to find connections between seemingly disparate elements and, and see what kind of tapestry I can weave with at all. Mm-hmm. I think the word witch and the way that you're describing it and talking about these binary labels and categories that people want to put people in it's that is so much a part of the word witch because witch is a word that was an accusation it was hurled at people and they could lose their lives over it and to reclaim it in the context of folklore shakespeare the witch trials the different ways that it's represented in modern pop culture is to embrace it all to say I am not one of those things I'm all of those things exactly because you know if you're going to call yourself a witch in this you know kind of positive stance of reclamation it is still in response to hundreds if not thousands of years of persecution and horror and fear and you know I would argue that our feelings about witches often reflect our feelings about women and femmes. And and I should say, and I am always careful to say that, yes, people of all genders are witches and can be witches and have been called witches. But, you know, when you look at the witch hunts, for example, throughout Europe and, and the New England colonies, 75, between 85% of those accused and, and killed were women. And it is an archetype that is inherently linked with the fear of women or the hate of women or the want to control female sexuality or female power. The fear Um, of women's power. Yep, that's right. That's right. Of women in power. (laughs) Yeah, of women in power, of women who want to use their innate gifts um, to forward themselves in whatever way, in economic ways, creative ways, religious ways, medical ways. I mean, and so that's that's really important to me. And and that's why this book, you're right, it's not a how-to book. And it's not just for people who are witchy, like, I think that this book could be beneficial or hopefully interesting to really anybody, but certainly to anyone who's interested in gender studies overall. Mm, Or culture. Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So if you're just someone who happens to like really like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, you know, um, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and stuff, I think you'll get a kick out of this book. Uh, But if you're someone who also is a serious practitioner and you want to know the history of people who identify as practitioners of witchcraft, you'll have something to hopefully get out of this book too. So no matter what level or... Um, whoa, that was a big crash outside. <laughs> we're we're uh, conjuring some powerful, mm. powerful. Talk about powerful here. women. <laughs> Woo. But anyhow, you know, no matter what your entry point is or what your level of engagement is regarding the word witch or regarding the topic of witches, I think you'll find something here in the book for you. Mm-hmm. I just have to throw in just a funny little aside about how I came to be called hippie witch because I heard you say once that you have a thing for Oprah and think that Oprah is a very magical woman. I 
fully agree. And one day, way, way back in the day, before I was podcasting or doing anything that I'm doing now, I Googled New Age Witch, hoping to find (laughs) New Age Witches. And what first came up was like a hate website dedicated to bringing Oprah down and calling her a new age witch like it's a bad thing. And I was like, I'm going to start calling myself a new age witch in solidarity with with Oprah and all the strong women who have been brought down. And it just evolved into hippie witch because I thought it had a better ring to it. (laughs) Mm, mm. I thought, how funny, like just hurling that word at a powerful woman is still a tool that people use. Oh, absolutely. And as I write in the book, choose any female politician on either side of the aisle and Google her name and witch, and you will find a photoshopped image of her as an ugly, hideous witch, or you'll find someone saying that she's a witch or engaged in witchcraft. This is still a word we use to silence women or to shame them um, or to, you know, try and embarrass them for their ambition, um, or to trivialize them or make them seem frivolous. I mean, it's, it's still this loaded word. And so absolutely, I mean, I absolutely consider Oprah a a witch or a kind of a witch. I write about that in the book too. I think RuPaul is an amazing witch. Yeah. And I'm obsessed with him. Um, and I write about him in the book a little bit. So, you know, it's a word that we can use in all these different ways. And just because we're using it more positively as this big, beautiful compliment, not everybody uses it that way for sure. Mm -hmm. So everybody's homework is to Google your favorite powerful woman and the word witch to see what comes (laughs) up next to it. Yeah. And the second piece of your homework is to go order waking the witch. So what is the fastest, easiest way for people to do that? Oh my goodness. It is everywhere. Um, you can really just pick your favorite online ordering book related website. You will find it. Um, of course, if you can get it at your local bookshop or your indie bookshop, that's always great. And indie bound is a great place, uh, a great website. Um, if you want to find your local indie shop that's carrying it, but really it is absolutely everywhere. And I really encourage everyone to pick it up. And I thank you for considering doing so. I'm so excited for you. How exciting. Thank you so much. It's, it's really, Ooh, it's a, it's a wild, wonderful thing to have a book out in the world. It's, it, it's its own kind of scary and awesome experience for sure. Yeah. Pretty soon we're going to be Googling Pam Grossman, which, and you're going to have a hate website dedicated just to you. And we'll all consider it a thing of honor. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I mean, in, in, in all sincerity, like, I mean, people can Photoshop me all they want to, that's fine. But you know, there is some vulnerability about putting yourself out there as a public witch. And, you know, I'm mindful about that too. So, you know, I'm not taking that super lightly as well. Um, but I also, Oh, it's, it's absolutely, you know, it's, it's an honor to, 
do so. And it's an honor to get to have forums like this where I can really explain what that means and show that it's not this flattened, scary stereotype, that there is so much complexity and joy and compassion and goodness and yeah, a little bit of playful wickedness in there too. Mm -hmm. How can people, what's the best URL to contact you or find you online? Yeah. So my website is pamgrossman.com. Very, very easy. And from there, it'll link you to all of my stuff, to um, my events. I'm doing a bunch of events in support of the book. Uh, lots of them here in New York City, but then I'm starting to travel all over the country uh, for the rest of the year. So that's really exciting. Um, my handles are all under the name Phantasmophile, which is spelled with PHs. Um, because I started many hundreds of years ago doing <laughs> uh, an art and magic blog called Phantasmophile that's still very close to my heart uh, that I still blog on every every now and again. But yeah, the easiest way to find all of that is through pamgrossman.com. That'll link you to everything. Perfect. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask you the same question I ask at the end of all of these interviews, and that is... What is one tip you can share for creating the kick-ass life of your dreams? Ooh, what a great question. Oh, okay, I'm going to just say the first thing that comes to mind, which is so corny, but be, I be really... Be corny. We're here for the corny. I think that if you can learn to really laugh your ass off and not take shit too seriously. It's a liberating device. And also, you know, sometimes people ask me like, what's the best way to scare away a ghost? And I was taught like, yes, you can do a salt circle and yes, you can do a banishing spell and all of that. But if you flash a ghost and laugh at it and just show that you're not really taking it seriously, it will go away. And I think that's a really great tip in general for like anxiety or feelings of fear or feelings of self-doubt. Um, you know, of course you can honor it and listen to it. And, and I do that too. But if ultimately you're like, you know what, we don't know anything. And so we might as well have fun and just laugh our asses off. That helps to really dissipate you know, the self-doubt and the fear and the anxiety that plagues me all the time too, you know? Um, but this is one of the methods that I use and, and I find it really helpful. So good. It's for literal and figurative ghosts. That's exactly right. And demons and goblins, <laughs> all, all of the little naughty little monsters and, and phantoms that can haunt us and plague our minds for sure. Mm, I will definitely be linking to all the Pam Grossman things in the show notes. So uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And, and more power to you as you make your way across country. I hope a lot of people that are listening now get to come out to see you. I hope so too. And I just want to thank you for making such a warm and friendly and smart space where we can talk about witches and witchcraft. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I really just love your spirit and the whole vibe that you carry. So thank you. Yay. So that's that. I hope you enjoyed that. I definitely did. And hopefully you all are running out right now to get Waking the Witch 
And maybe even you'll get to see her on tour. That would be cool when she's on her book tour if she comes to a city near you. I also wanted to backtrack a couple of episodes to the episode I did with Abiola Abrams because I know the sound on that was weird. I got a couple of messages from some of you saying that you could only hear me through one side of your headphones. I thought that was something that I did because I've been messing around with the sound and trying. When I do an interview, the voices are going onto one track. So sometimes it's hard to level it out because I have a very high, like, like squawky parrot voice. <laughs> and other people seem to be speaking in a lower register but i i have to be myself i have to be who i am so otherwise these interviews would just be so stiff and awkward if i was all up in my head trying to control my voice but then when i try to level out the sound it's i kind of have to split the difference between the two voices that way so i'm hoping at some point this summer to switch over from recording on skype to Zencaster. I just haven't made that commitment yet, but I hear if I do that, I will have two tracks to work with, which will improve the sound quality, so I'm excited to do that. But that was not my fault. Yay! I thought it was my fault, but it actually was some mysterious glitch that happened between Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. So if you want to listen to that episode on Blog Talk Radio, you, you will not have that issue. It's And I don't know if it turned out that way on Stitcher or Podomatic or other places that it shows up. But I know for sure it was on iTunes. And the first person that told me about it, I was like, I listened to it on Blog Talk Radio. I was like, it sounds fine to me. What's the problem? I just don't hear it. And it and it baffled me because I I know the person who was telling me and she's super awesome and supportive and and she would not be <laughs> yanking my chain. So finally, I went over to iTunes and I was like, ah, oh, damn it, damn it. I know Blog Talk Radio was having some problems too, getting episodes up on iTunes in a timely fashion. So I think it just fell into the cracks there. Thankfully, y'all loved that episode. <laughs> it was a really popular, fun episode. But I have not heard from any of you if you actually signed up for Abiola's Manifesting Retreat in Paris, which sounds like an amazing way to spend the summer. Is anybody thinking about doing that? Did you sign up? I would like to know. And speaking of amazing ways to spend the summer... Woohoo! I will soon be posting a standalone episode here in a couple of days, a solo episode to explain in detail what is going on with the Summer of Magic so that you can get involved as little or as much as you like. I've already teased it a little bit on the newsletter, and I have done two posts already for the Summer of Magic on Patreon, but this weekend, this, make, this weekend, I am working on the official launch so that it feels more like an actual thing. It is a thing. The Summer of Magic is a thing, y'all. <laughs> it's something I just wanted to do for myself, and I will explain that in the next episode here. But then I started thinking, wait a minute. 
This would be so much more fun if I could like suck everybody into the summer of magic with me. So so that's that's my evil plan <laughs> to try to get us all just pumped about making this the most magical summer of our lives. And speaking of things, Milwaukee's own glam rock band of musical sorcery, Tiger Night, is such a thing. Do you know Tiger Night? It is fronted by none other than my all kinds of inspiring friend, Molly Roberts, the original art witch. And I have already played their song Oracle here for you however many months ago now that was, but they just released a new video to go with it. And so I'm going to play it here again. And my goal in playing Oracle here again is to get you running over to Tiger Knight's YouTube channel to check out their trippy occult masterpiece of a video which, of course, I have linked to in the show notes that go with this episode. So here, here is Tiger Knight again with their rockin' song, Oracle. Enjoy. Much love to you. Peace. Say something now. 